Welcome to the FSF and Tapestry podcast. Today, Helen and I are joined by Jill Nottingham, who is part of the Challenging Learning team. We're going to be chatting with Jill about themes from her new book, Schools Out, Learnings In, Home Activities to Keep Children Engaged, Curious and Thoughtful, which was authored with Carmen Bergman and James Nottingham. Um, So welcome, Jill. It's lovely to have you with us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. And we're going to start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself, including reflecting on this would you rather question. Would you rather be a wild animal or a family pet? And it will become clear why we're asking this (laughs) as we move through the process, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, just to give you a little bit of a background into um, me. I'm a mum of three and wife of one currently. And um, I, like yourselves, I was a primary school teacher and worked with primary schools and nurseries, um, particularly in areas of social deprivation. And um, I became a teaching and learning consultant for the local authority. And at the time, there was um, a project called RAISE, which was Raising Aspirations in Society. And it was funded um, by um, some regeneration money and some lottery funding as well, actually. And it was for a specific area of North Northumberland, where they had um, particularly low employment, um, lots of economic problems, um, a lot of people who who really, you know, were low in their aspirations and they were worried that these groups of children that were coming through school were just going to keep this cycle going. So they wanted intervention with school and with the community as well, but largely with schools um, to help to raise their aspirations, their self-confidence, their self-esteem. So that's where I met James and we worked together on that project. And then afterwards, when all the funding ran out, we felt as though it was such a such a worthwhile thing to do. And it was going so well that we wanted to continue that kind of work and spread it further out. So we set up our own company, which is now Challenging Learning. It had some rather weird and rather unsuccessful names throughout <laughs> its involvement. <laughs> Norman Wisdom <laughs> became Northern Wisdom at one oh. point. But <laughs> and we also had Thinking Cap, which was um, the cap bit was thinking children ask philosophical and then there was a question mark. <laughs> so we ditched all of those and we ended up um, with challenging learning at the end for but yeah, and, and so since then, we've worked with schools all around the world, um, running professional learning days, um, doing demo lessons, coaching with um, some of the adults in education, as well as um, doing big conferences. Um, so it's been a real just absolute treat and pleasure to be able to work with so many different people in education all around the world in different places and see how they do it differently and um, also just to see to share practice I think that's such a hugely important thing that um, we need to do more and more of because even if it's even if you see a context that is a completely different setup to your own I think there's always something that you can take from it you can you can learn from it you know even if it's you take it away and you 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 reinterpret it quite differently. You've still had that initial spark of inspiration, I think, that's come from it. And so that for me is is always, always a pleasure and something that I never ever you know take for granted that people letting me into their settings and and allowing me to um have the absolute joy of seeing how they work with the students and the children is is something that just gives me joy (laughs) gives me happiness too and 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 it's something that I can then you know go and share with other other professionals in other practices as well so we can and I think you know in education we should be supporting each other it's there's there's enough 
um, <laughs> there's enough challenges out there for us all. We need to all be, you know, have each other's backs and be helping as much as possible. So back to your would you rather question. While I would love to think of myself as a wild animal, that's uh, <laughs> probably very far from the truth. Um, I have, as well as three children who maybe are more the wild animal element in our household, I have um, four very pampered, very lovely miniature dachshunds. And um, they are absolutely the well the heart of our home I think it's fair to say they they have the best life in the world they have the best of you know all the cuddles all the attention nobody ever gets cross or grumpy or snappy with them they always get the best of everyone plus you know they get the best of the outdoor life they can we live by the coast so we overlook the beach so they go out on the beach daily they're out in the farm fields they're running around and then they still seem to come in and find the best place on the sofa and <laughs> of, a, of a cold evening they are the ones who are snuggled up right in front of the log burner so I think they've got life absolutely sorted so if I question <laughs> should really have been would you rather be a wild animal or a very pampered family pet <laughs> absolutely so I think if I'm going to be a, pam a, a you know a family pet I would really love to be one of my dachshunds because <laughs> they are <laughs> yes, very pampered family pets <laughs> so Joe, in the early 2000s James Nottingham created a model called the learning pit can you describe the various stages of learning that, that that was describing, really, when you're learning something new? There are the very specific stages that you've, uh, James has identified that you go through. Can you give us an overview of that, of that model? Yes, of course. Um, it was originally conceived um, as a means of really showing the children that learning can be a frustrating process, that it's not it's not something that's easy and it's not something that if you want to do it well is um, going to be quick either. It is a, a long process and it's something that, you know, isn't always linear either. So we, we, it goes up and it goes down. And if you want to learn something very, very well, then you often have to challenge and unlearn some of the things that you already know about it. Um, actually, I'm, I was watching Strictly Come Dancing with my uh, youngest daughter the other night and, and one of the celebrities was saying it's absolutely fantastic that this sorry one of the, the professional dancers was saying it's absolutely fantastic that this celebrity has no experience whatsoever of dancing because they have no things that we need to unlearn or we yeah. need to get rid of we can start from scratch and do it properly and but so I think you know often we can all of us come into learning having at least some idea of what we know about certain things, whether that's a very superficial understanding or not. Um, and then once we we start discussing it or we, we come across additional ideas or even conflicting ideas that go with it, um, it, it causes us to think, well, oh gosh, maybe I don't understand this at all. Um, and for children, that can be quite daunting. That can make them feel as though, oh, my goodness, maybe I'm stupid. Maybe it, maybe I'm one of the thick ones because I've got it wrong. You know, it's not it's, that's not what I was thinking. And they're the clever child. So they must be right. Um, and so it's it's about encouraging children. It, it, well, really, it's about normalizing the learning process. So seeing it as a process in itself and looking at it as something that will cause some discomfort because regardless as whoever, you know, how, however well you think you know something, there's always another piece of information that can come along or another idea that can come along that could challenge that information or complement it either but either way you've got to accommodate the new information and by accommodating that you are refining you are developing you are um, increasing your own understanding that you had at the very beginning of it and that's what the learning picks about so you begin with the concept 
of something, which is your your original, your beginning understanding of it. And then as you go into the pit, you start through a process often of um, social construction, um, working with others and listening to other ideas and um, hearing different thoughts and viewpoints. You then start to accommodate all of this new information. But when it doesn't always sit nicely or comfortably against the information that you held before, Sometimes you have to readjust your thinking. Sometimes you have to do a bit of what some of the Strictly dancers are doing. You have to unlearn (laughs) some of the things that you already were quite fixed on in order to relearn what might be a more accurate or a more defined, more refined um, understanding of it. And that's where the, the conflict and the construct stage comes into it as well. So it's the conflict is when you, there's something going on there that, that you've come across and it doesn't quite sit with what you understood already. So you, you need to find a way of, con- of deconstructing what you already understood in order to reconstruct it in a way where all of these pieces can sit together again and make some new sense of it, which is your consider stage. So you're considering, okay, what do I now know about this concept or this idea or this subject? And then, of course, once you've got that much better understanding and um, also your new meaning of it, I think, because just because we're part of a social constructive group, we're not all going to come away with the same understanding. We're not all going to come away with the same meaning. We're not all going to come away with the, the same idea at the end, and nor should we. Um, but, but what your new meaning is at the end, you can then take and you can transfer to other areas of learning as well. And um, that's that's really why um, the the learning pit came about. And since then, we've we've obviously developed it much further. It's been developed into lots of different posters, and we we did a particularly nice early years version of the poster as well because I felt quite strongly that it was at times seen as um, something that was more for for older children. It was a bit, maybe a bit too abstract for for early years children and they they needed something much more concrete than that. So so I developed a version for that as well. And um, James has shared the idea at various conferences and they published an article about it in 2007. And um, I developed how how it could work in line with um, some of, not only Vygotsky's tech um, theories, but Piaget's theories as well, so that we could really put it and embed it into not just school practice, but early years practice and practice at home with parents and children as well in their own environments. And um, now I think there's something crazy like 200 million references to it online. So it's uh, <laughs> it's taken on a life of its own, actually. <laughs> And you mentioned there, Jill, um, Vygotsky and um, the zone of proximal development. And you do make in the book quite a quite a good sort of um, correlation between the, the zone of proximal development and um, the learning pit. And I wondered if you could just elaborate on that a little bit more. Yes, well, really, um, the learning pit is a child friendly version of the zone of proximal development. It's... Um, uh, well, v- Vygotsky's uh, theory is that if you are in your comfort zone, then it's very likely that you are practicing rather than learning. So you then need to just step outside of your comfort zone without going too far, because too far is too much of a stretch. So just step outside of your comfort zone into what he calls the zone of proximal development, which is your learning zone. And um, th- we, ca- we took that and we've we've used that to develop the learning pit really. So when you go down into the pit, that really is your learning zone. You're going in with what you had as one idea, which is your practice zone. So if you stay at that level, then you continue to practice, which, and there's absolutely nothing wrong in practice at all. We all need to practice things, but we also need to move on from practice at some point and we need to start developing and learning further. So that's when 
Vygotsky goes into a zone of proximal development. And when um, we go into the learning pit and we start playing with our understanding of it, we start stretching it a bit, we start testing it and evaluating our understanding and and questioning it as well. You know, have, have we considered all the all of the um, different viewpoints? Have we got all the information? Does this always work? Does it always sit that way? Um, and so we we then start to construct it and come out the under, the other side with a new practice, a new place, new understanding. Um, and yeah, I think I think that's that's the idea of it really is to again, like I said before, is to normalize it for children. So it's zone of proximal development isn't particularly a child-friendly term, but the learning pit is, and what we want to do is um is make this process explicit for, for children in the classroom, but also in any walk of life, because it doesn't have to, you know, we, we, we have concepts all around us all the time. Not it, Learning does not stop when we leave the classroom. So what we want is for children to know that everything shouldn't come easy all the time. If everything comes easy, then maybe you're not really pushing yourself too much. Maybe you're not actually learning that much. Maybe it's things that you knew already to begin with and you're just playing around with them a bit. So we want to, we want to make it a positive thing, this zone of proximal development. We want children to desire to go there not be afraid of stepping out of that comfort zone, not, not be worried that if they, if they step outside their comfort zone, this is a, this is a scary area. No, we want, we want them to, to embrace it, to say, look, I want to be in that, that zone of proximal development. I want to be in the pit because that's a, that's a celebration. That's something, you know, that tells me that I'm doing good stuff, that my brain's, you know, whirring, that I'm working, that I'm learning and that I'm making progress. And that, you know, we all want our children to be making progress. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, cognitive conflict a little while ago. Can you expand on that and how that leads to longer lasting learning? What is it about that? Yes. Yeah. Well, cognitive conflict is when you hold two ideas in your head and the two different ideas, but you agree with both, both of them, but they maybe don't sit comfortably beside each other. So, um, yeah, they're probably in conflict with each other even. So it could be things like, um, let me think of the, well, for instance, young children, let's go, young children think in terms of concepts almost exclusively when they're tiny. So they, you know, they, they think about, they learn animals, for example. So, you know, what a dog is, what a horse is, what a cow is. These are all concepts that they come up with. Now, their, their concept at, at any given point is only developed to what they've been experienced to or, or exposed to, to that stage. So if a child has been told that a horse is a creature, an animal that has four legs, has hair, has a tail, and then they, they're out and about and they see a cow in a field and they point horse, horse at this cow. Well, then they, they've got, even at that tiny, tiny age of very, the beginnings of verbal development, they are in a state of cognitive conflict when they're told, no, that's not a horse. Because they, they in one side, one part of their thinking, they think, well, hang on a minute, it's got hair, it's got a tail, it's got four legs, it's standing in a field. You told me that's the definition of a horse. That's what a horse is. But now you're telling me that's not a horse. So if it's got all of those things and it's not a horse, how can that be? So they've then got to almost deconstruct their understanding of a horse a little bit and reconstruct it with a better understanding, more defined understanding. So, you know, you say things like, well, horses go neigh and, and the cows go moo. So, so you're pointing out the differences. You're then saying, okay, what is a horse not? So we've you've looked at what a horse is, but in order to fully understand what a horse is, you also need to know what a horse is not. So the cow has 
odors in this case. Okay. <laughs> so there's all of these different things that you can point out that horses do not have. So they've then got to take this back to their previous con conception of what a horse is and say, okay, right, I had all of these bits, but I've now got to accommodate these bits as well. So not all animals with four legs, hair and a tail are horses. They have to have these things, but not these things. And that's what we're talking about with cognitive conflict. So the next time, and, and it goes on and on and on. This is a developmental process. That, that child's understanding of what a horse is is not finished at that point. You know, they might go into another field and see a tiny little Shetland pony and think it's a dog because it's, <laughs> it's the same size as their dog at home. And, you know, it has all the similar attributes. My actually, my youngest daughter, um, who, who thankfully had no understanding of the concept of mating at this stage. And we live we live with cow fields all around us. So um, there was cows in a field and she referred to them as giving each other piggybacks. Oh. <laughs> so her, her um, understanding at that stage was if one cow is on the back of another cow, then it's giving it a piggyback. That was her point of reference. She didn't have an understanding of mating. So, Leave you know, it's... There for a couple of years, darling. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, so, of course, I said, yes, isn't that lovely? <laughs> but yes. Sorry, Jill, I was just going to say something that really struck me in, in that bit of the, the book was the kind of, the, the, this was the beginnings of philosophy almost for young children, as you've described, very young children. And then as they get a little bit older, you know, the beginnings of kind of that critical inquiry and absolutely so exciting to think of it that way, that, you know, you could have a really small person doing doing a bit of philosophy, you know, in the pit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the youngest children are the most natural philosophers because they are constantly asking why. You know, they're asking these questions all the time. Unfortunately, the older they get, the less questions they start asking, particularly the more um, explorative questions they start they stop asking and it, they become much more superficial questions. Um, but... I've done so much philosophy, well, philosophy for children, philosophy with um, the youngest children in nurseries. And it is amazing because they are such deep little thinkers and they have they have these fantastic ideas. They have no filter and they also they're not worried about what their peers think at that stage either. So they, they don't they're not. Um, inhibited by worrying, oh, is this going to make me look silly? You know, is this not a cool thing to say? So they 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 just let they just let their their thoughts um, freely through flow, and it's it's a marvel. And I think we really need to encourage it at this age because the more we encourage it in the in the young years, the more normal it becomes as they get older as well, hopefully. And um, and the more they then also are empowered by the fact that they have this wonderful capacity to think. They have this amazing ability to question and to, to wonder about life. And um, I think the, the wonders of, of young children are just, are just a joy to behold, actually. We, we really need to tap into that more and uh, keep that going for longer. Yeah. You asked about or you mentioned um, a little bit earlier on about stepping outside of a comfort zone. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that, what what it feels like for children and for parents to step outside of yeah. comfort zones and and why that's good. Why is that good for children's learning? Okay, I was thinking well, a bit deal about you also mentioned a lovely phrase, which I just have to get into the podcast, which is wonder wobbles. <laughs> I wrote yes. it down. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> Yes, wonder wobbles. Um, well, it's of course, as it suggests, it's it's very uncomfortable stepping outside of your comfort zone. It's it's not somewhere that, you know, all things considered, we would push ourselves to go if there was no no um payoff from it. <laughs> there has to be some payoff, there has to be some reason to go there, otherwise, why would we? Um and I think it, partly the, the reason we need to do 
to encourage them to come out of their comfort zone as well is because that's where the excitement, where the deep learning takes place. That's where you get these eureka moments. That's where you get these this feeling of actually having achieved something, of actually, you know, going through a bit of a struggle and getting there in the end. And that's that's a really great and very, very empowering feeling to have for anybody, an adult or a child. But um, our culture at the moment, educationally and socially, actually, I think, is, is very much weighted in terms of adults, teachers, parents having all the answers. And the children are there to listen, to remember and to act on that rather than to question, to explore, to think for themselves. And um, so our education system feeds this massively because of its huge um, emphasis that it puts on achievement and outcome. And, you know, so we, we, we use ticky sheets, we use age-related assessments, we grade children and you know, from very early on, children begin to realise that it, it's it's not about the, the learning. It's not about the process. That's not what what's valued. It's about what you what the outcome is, what the end result is. So why on earth would I raise my head above the parapet and risk failure or risk, you know, not having this wonderful outcome that I'm going to get a sticker for or a tick for, you know, when I can stay in this comfort zone and make sure that I get everything correct and that my my book just has lots of lovely nice ticks in it rather than any kind of corrections um and I think I really feel like we need to move away from this uh, and you you're asking um why and I think because this this encourages our children to avoid challenge it encourages um them to have doubts about their abilities so from very young age, children realize that their, their ability or their value often is in comparison to that of the peers, their peers in their class. So, you know, they know who's who's judged as being the clever boy or the clever girl. They know who's judged as being um, the good readers or the the children who um, are on the top table. And so you know it's not about to them at that point it's not about they don't want to make mistakes they don't want to be in a place where they're going to be open to getting things wrong because that's just going to expose them even more as the less able children in the class and certainly the more able children you know in inverted commas do not want to go there either because they've got a reputation to keep up because the ones who get it right all the time they've they certainly don't want to use that lose their moniker of being you know the top table gosh heaven forbid they slide from there so you know we're, we're creating this culture which is is flying in the face of um building resilience building grit um building skills for life really in these children and they're starting to attribute difficulty to low ability so if they find something difficult or they struggle with something it's because I'm stupid it's because I'm not one of the clever children I just don't get it and I'm never going to be able to get it and you know that's that's actually part of learning we can have children who go right the way through education achieving but maybe their progress in learning hasn't necessarily been so great because they've they've been able to achieve that for the last three years <laughs> you know they've just not been stretched to achieve further than that and um, I think my concern is that we've, we're creating this ceiling where achievement is everything and we're, we're neglecting building these attitudes these skills these knowledge of how to learn and how to build resilience and how to be prepared to take intellectual risks. And that this pays off as well, that mistakes actually are a normal part of learning. And if you're not making mistakes in it, then it kind of suggests that it's a bit too easy for you. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you need to look at those mistakes you know, as, as positives. Obviously, you don't want to be, keep making the same mistake again and again and again because, you know, that that isn't helpful but um 
you want to look at mistakes and think, okay, what went wrong there? How can I change it? How can it help me move forward? How is it going to help me make more progress going forward? And look at them in a positive way for both parents and children and teachers, actually, because teachers are as scared of this as parents and children are, in my experience, more so often, actually, because even as teachers, we go in with a lesson plan with outcomes on it of what we want by the end of that lesson. You know, we're predicting what these kids are going to learn. You know, how, how on earth do we can we do that to that extent? You know, so really the, the emphasis is on the wrong thing. The emphasis shouldn't be on the teaching and it shouldn't be on the outcomes. It should be on the learning that takes place. And it shouldn't be about comparing children to children. It should be about individual progress and how much progress has that child made personally from where they started to where they are now and that's what we need to be celebrating and that's what we need to be um really encouraging in our education systems and at home as well you know not oh well what did you get in the test today and what did your friend get (laughs) which is so often the case or the kids will say say themselves um i you know i got 10 out of 15 in the test but it's okay because Johnny got five so it it really doesn't matter that at all it's you know brilliant if you got 10 out of 10 on the test if you got five last time then that's fantastic progress you've doubled your progress on what you did last time but if you got 10 out of 10 on the test but you got I don't know nine last time if you've got five this yeah 10 out of of 15 and you got um, 12 out of 15 last time, then that's not so great because your progress is going back. So it's this, it's almost arbitrary what the number is or what the outcome is. It depends what the progress is. And and what you've described there is pretty much my entire education. And I won't say how old (laughs) I am now, but I survived (laughs) and I did well. Because I learned stuff off by heart and I regurgitated yeah. it for my uh, O-levels in those days. No, just, just learned it all off by heart, got my A-levels, went to a, a, a university, pretty much did the same there. Got high scores because I just blatted it all back. I read lots of papers and I jiggled it all around and wrote assignments. And it was only when I went into research at the grand old age of, I don't know, 22 or something, that I actually started to think about how I would learn and what I enjoyed yeah. about learning and it was terrifying, really, losing that memory game, really, which is what it had been up until that point. And I think we're, we're still there now, this 30 years later. We are. We're still requiring children to remember and, and regurgitate. Absolutely. Which yeah. is why, you know, you, your children who have the good memories and often your girls, because they've got the better concentration spans, you know, generally, um, do well because in the in the current system because they can you know re- retain this information for long enough that they need to to be able to regurgitate it at the right time and achieve the success that that um, dictates. But you you're absolutely right. We've not. That's how I went through school as well. And what we're finding is that when they these students get to university and it was very much a similar case for me as well. It's a bit of a shock to the system because all of a sudden you've been spoon fed this information. You've, I mean, I was literally told which page in the textbook to find the answers on to write the the answers to the questions that I was (laughs) going to do at school. So you get to university and all of a sudden you've got to research You've got to do, you've got to develop this whole new set of skills that you've never been exposed to before. You've ne- you, and it, you've got to work independently and it's all on you. And that is a, that's a shock to the system, which causes a lot of children to burn out. And particularly those that have gone through very, very easily through school and have been labeled as, you know, the bright child or the, the high achiever. Suddenly they get there and they feel like this failure as a person, as a student, as a learner, because they're not they're not well prepared for this scenario anymore. They're no longer getting the high results because they haven't got those skills. And um, I I really think, 
you know, we need to to readjust how we how we prepare our children, not just for university, of course not, for life in general, because, you know, I'm, I'm talking university because that was my um, experience, but it's uh, absolutely the same for those children who go straight into employment as well. Suddenly they have to stand on their own two feet. They have to think for themselves. And I don't think we're preparing them well enough for that at the moment. Along the same lines is this idea of being a helicopter parent. You you talk about this in the book. One, you know, I think many of us have actually experienced that ourselves. I know I have one who hovers over their child to make sure they're doing okay and they're not struggling with anything and having you on hand at all times to get the glue stick or the right colour. Um, I know I've done that with, with my children. Mm. But what's wrong with that? Can you can you describe why, why that's not a great idea in terms of learning? Okay, well, I think... I don't think there's anything wrong with it in the right context. So I think it's it's definitely contextual. Sometimes we need to be helicopter parents and other times we need to step back and allow them to, you know, struggle a little bit and to learn for themselves. Um, if, for example, if we were to take our toddlers to the swimming pool for the first time I'm sure well I'm hoping very few of us would just throw them in at the deep end with no floats and uh, no coaching no support and sit at the side and read a book and and just say to them go on you'll be all right it'll build resilience in you go on keep going (laughs) but (laughs) uh, you know at that at that point we very much need to be that helicopter parent (laughs) we will be in the water with them we will be literally physically supporting them we will be coaching them we'll be reassuring them we'll be making them feel safe we'll be making them feel secure so there is definitely a place for helicopter parenting however when we get when our child gets to the point where they're doing um, full lengths of the pool not needing any floats not needing any support or anything at all you know, it, it would not be good for us to be still in there saying, get those armbands back on. It's not safe for you to be doing that on your own. Come on. Oh, you know, holding them around the middle while they're, while they're trying to do a butterfly for uh, 25 metres. But um, so and I think that's what we're talking about when they get to this stage where they have enough about them. And again, this is this is very much going back to the Gotsky and the zone of proximal development stuff, you know, when they are at that point where they've had the support, they've had the structure, they can now do some on their own. We need to just allow them that space and allow them that time, even if it's a bit of a stretch for them, not not a full stretch. Again, we're not going to get them diving off the 10 meter diving board at this stage, but you know, we're, we're at the side. We're not necessarily in the pool, but we're at the side. There's lifeguards there. There are things there to create that safety. However, we need them to experience what it's like to swim on their own, what it's like to even even when they're getting tired and they're struggling a little bit. OK, get through it to prove to themselves as well that they can do it, that, you know, if, if we don't do that, we're disempowering our children. If, if they think that they need mum or dad's help with everything, then what happens when they, they're in school and mum and dad aren't there? They're going to melt down. They're going to worry. They're going to think they're incapable of doing something on their own. Just like that kid in the pool whose mum's shoving his armband back on and he's 15 and, you know, he's, <laughs> he's capable of swimming on his own. The more, the more we do that to them the more we're going to impact on their self-confidence, on their self-belief, on their self-esteem, the more they're going to think, oh, well, she doesn't believe in me. He doesn't believe in me. So obviously I can't do it. Obviously I do need help with this. Mm -hmm. This is not something within my control. And, you know, going back to something else, which is very important, which is building students and children's self-efficacy, which is a huge thing, especially in this day and age, I think. We need to feel as though, as children, we have control and influence over our own lives, over our own decisions, over our own, you know, to a degree, we're not, we're not saying, you know, if you want to do something that's risky, that, you know, you, you just make your own decisions for that. That's not what we're saying at all. But what we are saying is, 
if children feel as though they can influence their outcomes, they can have a have a um, some control over whether they um, can succeed in this task or not, then that's extremely powerful thing for them. And that builds their confidence massively. But if they feel that, you know, they, they have no power over this, it's, they can only take it on if mum or dad or the teacher is there to hold their hand and to, to help them through step by step by step, then, you know, they, they're not going to be able to tackle something new next time around when mum and dad or teacher isn't there to help them. So related to that, Jill, that concept of um, the kind of, I'm going to use air quotes, but no one can see me, the right, the right <laughs> answer. Um, yes. How do parents kind of avoid giving the air quotes again, right answer? What, you know, what kind of questions can they ask their children that can help them avoid doing that? Okay, well, Again, assuming um, that the child's not putting themselves at risk in any way, in which case, you know, we, we do need to give them the right answer. <laughs> They're about to stick their fingers in the socket and say, is this a good idea? Then, you know, the right answer is very definitely no, please don't do that. But, um, <laughs> but yes, in, in the context of learning, then I think we, we very often as parents and educationalists as well use the IRE um, formula of um, initiate, respond, evaluate. So we, our child, you know, we set them off on a task or they they we say get your homework done or complete this little activity and they'll respond with something and we'll either say, yeah, great, or no, that's not right. Or we'll give them the answer that they're supposed to have gotten by themselves in the first place. And I think it's just a little tweak, but if we can replace the E um, for evaluate with explore instead, then it, it allows the children to think for themselves as well, but think for themselves in a non-scary and a very supportive and very collaborative way, actually. So it's things like... Um, Oh, that that looks really interesting. Why do you think it's like that? Or if they if they come back with something like, I don't know the answer to this. It's you know, I'm really stuck with this one. Then say, well, what do you think then? What are your thoughts about it? You know, let's think it through together. Let's because I, I don't know all the answers to everything as well. And I think that's an important point to say that parents don't have all the answers to everything. We think we do often, but we really don't. I, I'm often lacking in lots of answers, but uh, <laughs> but as adults, we don't. We're all we're always coming across things that we don't know the answers to. And um Children need to know that, that that's part of life as well, that not knowing the answer and having to think it through and having to problem solve and having to sort it out is just part of being a human being. And it's normal and it's good and it's not a weakness and it's not something that should cause us to melt down or cause us to feel insecure or or inadequate in any way. Um, so parents asking things like... Um, Okay, well, let's have a look at the information together. What does the information here tell us? Or what does the evidence tell us? Or what does the picture tell us? Or, or what, what are we being asked to do, do you think? And do you have any ideas about this? Well, let's have a look at your ideas. And then, maybe, and then if they're really struggling, you can say, well, I've got some ideas, but I'm not sure about them either. So let's think about my ideas as well then. So rather than just saying, this is the answer, move on to the next question, which actually shuts down any kind of thinking to begin with. So they're, they're not even, if they didn't get that in the first place and you give them the answer, then they're never going to get that the next time around either because they have not thought about it. They've just basically shoved that one under the carpet. We'll move on to the next one. Um, so we, we want to very much keep that that dialogue open and that thinking process going as they go forward. So as well as let's try and work it out together, if they've, if they've done another one, say, well, how did you work the last one out? You know, what did you do there that might help us this time round? Or why do you think that's different to this one then? So it's, it's just those more exploratory questions that we want to start dropping in there so that 
you know, it's, it encourages them not to give up at the first hurdle as well, not to think, oh, well, I don't know what the answer is. So that's, that's that question finished. I, um, you know, that there's no point in me even continuing to think about that one. And I think that's an important skill, even as they get older, because I know my 15 year old who's doing, um, her exams at the moment in maths, she's, she's got a bit of a, um, of a filter about maths from way back when in school, where she, even though she's very good and she's in top set or whatever that's meant to be. And, um, but she still thinks she's a she's got imposter syndrome. She thinks she's there and she shouldn't really be there. You know, she's going to get found out one of these days because, you know, she's she doesn't know how she's there, but it's just some fluke. And so when it comes to the test, she panics if she sees a question that she's unfamiliar with. She panics. And, and rather than having this resilience and this tenacity and this mindset of thinking, OK, let's take a minute. What, what is there in this that I recognize? You know, what have I done before that might help me with this? You know, what, what ideas might I have that might help me solve this? She just goes into a blind panic of, oh, I don't know that, right? Okay, I'm never going to know it, so I'll move on to something else. So I think encouraging this as parents from a young age to just have this almost internal dialogue of these questions whizzing around all the time helps us you know, all the way through our, as students and beyond, actually. One of the chapters in your book is called Lessons About Ourselves, where the big question is, what is choice? Which I found absolutely fascinating. We referred to <laughs> philosophy earlier on. It was often a tangent there. This seems a really interesting concept to explore with our very youngest children, because we all want them to make choices in their play. We know children are more motivated to learn when they've chosen the activity themselves. So what are some of the activities you'd suggest doing with, with our, say, three to five-year-olds where they're making choices? Okay. Um, well, of course, there's, there's a difference between um, planned play and, and free play with our young ones as well. So I think it's, it's putting in part of the planned play is encouraging them to choose options that they find interesting again in these air quotes um, so it's making challenging the interesting option for them now I think I think we all recognize that actually very young children love challenge they seek it out you know if, if we were to give a four year your average four-year-old four building blocks and said build a tower with it you know generally they'd find that a bit too easy you know they'd stack one on top of the other and say right I'm done you know so they'd either then go looking for another activity that has more challenge or more stimulation or they'd ask for more blocks say can I have more can I build it higher how come on how high do you think I can build this and and they're wanting to challenge themselves almost instinctively so of course what happens is we give them more blocks we give them a full bag full of blocks and they challenge themselves how high can I build this tower and if they get it to 20 blocks and then suddenly it falls over they don't berate themselves and think right that's it I'm an absolute failure at tower building I'm never going to build a tower again that's you know what they do is they, they go oh and then they start again yeah they think about right hang on a minute what went wrong the first time they learn from the mistake they evaluate the mistakes they learn from them they build strategies to move forward from them and they they continue to challenge themselves. So they think, right, okay, I put that really big block at the top last time and that's what tipped it over. So next time I'm going to put that big block at the bottom and put a little block at the top. I mean, how fantastic is that? So we, they do the same with bike riding. You know, once they learn to ride a bike, they don't then want to put the stabilizers back on again. <laughs> they, they, you know, they challenge themselves. I know my daughter, she started riding a bike and then it was, look what I can do now. You know, I can, I can ride a bike with only one hand. Look what I can do now. I can go down steps. So they are naturally inclined to seek challenge, to want challenge, because it makes it interesting. If they continue to cycle up and down the same path that they learned to ride their bike on, it's soon going to be extremely boring. And, and that is practice. And what we need to do is we need to, um, I think, make explicit the difference between 
what what we call practice or even performing and um, learning or challenge. So um, we can we can provide for these children very different opportunities within the classroom. And of course, you know, le- performing and practice is important. You know, before I wanted my daughter to take one hand off her bicycle um, handles, I wanted her to practice first so she got the balance and she could she felt confident enough to then take her hand off. So we we need to give them the opportunities to perform and to practice and to, to build confidence, but also then to be able to seek and choose challenge to extend where they're currently at so for me i would um i kind of suggest that you could have different activities set up in the classroom so you could have practice activities set up as well as um challenge activities set up for the same thing so some children who feel as though they need to practice this just a bit more they're not quite confident yet and that would be too much of a stretch for them to go into the challenge activity at that point you know, would be happy doing that. And that is absolutely fine. But for the ones who can do it easily, we need to say, we need to encourage them. We need to add fun to it. We need to say to them, who thinks they can take on this really interesting challenge? Who thinks they're up to it? Who thinks that they can manage this and really impress us with what they can do? So we're building it up to some positive experience. It's not difficulty is equals low ability and failure it's difficulty equals interesting it equals you know showing what i can do it it, it, it equals impressiveness <laughs> you know it equals power it's all of this kind of thing so for instance if it was an activity where children were using um math skills to compare sizes of objects then practice might be you know put this set of objects in, in um, order from smallest to largest. And that would be a really you know, suitable um, practice activity. However, the challenge activity for that could be, okay, how many different ways do you think you can order these objects? So not thinking about size, how many other ways can we order these objects? Who can come up with lots of different ways to put them in order? So that would be one way of doing it. And then, of course, it's the questions that go with that as well. So you would say to them, OK, so what did, what ideas did you have? What did you think of? Oh, you thought about colour. So you've ordered them according to the colours of the rainbow. That's interesting. Or, oh, you thought about weight or you thought about height or you thought about um usefulness you know all of that kind of thing so it's it's getting them to really stretch themselves and think outside of the box for these things and and it's responding to things like wow that's really interesting i didn't think of that where did that idea come from and so that and then it's 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 almost you debriefing it so where did that idea come from well i was looking at them and i thought well there's there's three that are more blue and there's two that are red. And so you're getting them to then deconstruct their thinking and tell you explicitly the process that they went through to do that. Um, so another example might be something, you know, role play. If you've got a shop set up for role play in the classroom, um, then you know, children might choose to go into the role play area and just being part of the role play might be enough practice for them at that stage. They're build, practicing language, they're practicing their social skills, all that kind of thing. But a challenge activity uh, um, could be, okay, who can redesign the role play area to make it into a super supermarket? And then, you know, you get them thinking about it so you're encouraging them to plan you're encouraging them to think of criteria what makes this supermarket super supermarket you know you're encouraging them to um, work collaboratively to think of other ideas to um, explore research you know who's been to a super supermarket before and what did it have in it what do we need to give our, our shop that it doesn't have already so all of these different things that, you know, our stuff that we're doing already within our settings, I'm absolutely sure of it. It's just making explicit the fact that 
they are challenging themselves by taking this step outside of the practice zone, away from what they're doing already, and they're moving it um, forward to thinking independently, to creating their own ideas and socially constructing something together as well. So it's, um, and again, it's back to that IRA thing, you know, instead of evaluating it, saying, oh, you've been playing lovely in the role play area. That's fabulous. Well done. You know, instead of that, we're exploring and saying, wow, what did you do there? That, that looks really interesting. Why did you do that? Gosh, what made you think of that? And why didn't you do that over there then? You know, what, what, why did you choose something different for that part? So we're, we're opening up their minds, but also we're showing them that we value their thinking. We value them as human beings as well. You know, what they've got to say is interesting and we're interested in it as adults. And I think too often it's a case of, you know, what the, what the adult has to say is interesting. The children have to stop and listen and then, you know, come back, go away, do your children thing and then come back when the adult's got something interesting to say again. <laughs> but actually... <laughs> You know, it's the children who have the interesting things to say, the most interesting things to say, and they learn from each other as well. So that is such a rich environment for developing all of these skills of um, thinking skills, all these different resilience skills. And I think in order to set up challenge activities, it's about thinking about the language that you use for them. So rather than um, the practice activities, which, you know, go and do this or complete this or finish this, you know, we're thinking of um, explore this, investigate this, discover this, plan it, design it, organize it, sort it, create it. So we're using these exciting words, these interesting and empowering words to say to the children, look, you, you can do this, go on, go off, you've got free reign, go and do it. And then tell us all about it, because we all can't wait to hear about your ideas. And I think that it just brings learning to life as well. I'm trying to develop something at the minute called um, Pit Patrol. And it, it was for the young children in nursery and um, early years settings. And it's, again, it's to make the pit a bit more explicit, not the pit itself, but the processes that are going on there. So if I've, I started some children off with little peaked caps and high-vis vests mm -hmm. with pit patrol on. And some of them are questioners and some of them are evaluators. So they go around with a little clipboard and they've got a set of questions that they've agreed beforehand to find out what learning has taken place. And they go around the different groups and they gather information. And at the end of this session, they report back. They are the reporters and they report back about the learning that they've observed in that session. And the evaluators do the same thing and the clarifiers will go around and they'll ask clarification questions to each of the groups sometimes. And they're, it, oh, sorry, they're interchangeable and um, it, it's just about making these thinking skills and the, the whole process of learning so explicit that the children not only know that they're doing it but can independently transfer it to other contexts as well they are in charge of it they're in control of it and um, they 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 are there you know, I'm trying to think what I'm getting carried away with myself now, but yeah, <laughs> but they, they are their own masters in terms of what they can learn. They have that self-efficacy. They know that if they develop these skills, they are going to get better at something just because they can't quite get it right this time around. Doesn't mean they never will get it right. Just because that tower won't stand up the first time. Doesn't mean it's never going to stand up. All they have to do is think about it. Look at what they did before, learn from what they did before and try something else. And that that just has so much um, to give, I think, in terms of just life lessons in general, but but particularly in education. I think they've you know, it, it, we might start off with building blocks, but before long, it becomes, you know, algebra and calculus and <laughs> magnificent you've called them evaluators and clarifiers that is just spectacular you can 
because those words, once they've understood them fully, will stay with them forever. That Absolutely. Stay with them, yeah. Which is what, as I mentioned earlier on, I never experienced at all till I was about 22. So that... Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we've got this fear sometimes that, oh, gosh, that's too grown up a word for young children. But that's rubbish. I mean, yeah. if you look at some of these Pokemon characters and the crazy names that they have and <laughs> and some of the other, um, you know, children's characters. And I think, well, I I mean, dinosaurs, for instance, my my son was obsessed with dinosaurs at age three, four five. And he could rhyme off all these dinosaur names. And so, you know, if, it, if they're capable of understanding Pokemon characters, dinosaurs, everything else that goes with it, then let's use the language with them. But let's explain it and let's make it meaningful and let's make it something concrete that they can grab hold of and they can apply themselves so that they can then transfer it as they get older as well. Yeah, thank you, Jill. I'm just, as you were just finishing there, I was just thinking this is exactly what the world needs right now, this generation of philosophers, thinkers, problem solvers, with all that resilience thrown in as well. It's just what, it's just what we need. Thank you so much, Jill. Oh, thank you. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And really invigorating to have this conversation <laughs> today. Well, I get very passionate about this, so you'll have to excuse the fact that I do kind of get carried away because I feel no, so passionately quiet. about it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you very much as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I think we, you, know, you obviously, you, the work that you do too, you, you share very much the same values that we do. And um, I just hope that we can all, as a yeah. as a group and and others beyond that, just help to make an impact in a positive way on education and for our young children going forward.